Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Lena Lee, who was born in South Korea but grew up moving countries every three years. As a third culture kid, she has lived in Seoul, Paris, Oslo, Kuala Lumpur, and New Jersey. After studying human sciences at Oxford University, Lena has been working in France. Girl Uprooted is her first book. She lives in London, a place she now calls home-ish. <laughs> Welcome, Lena. Thanks so much for having me, Ronit. Can I just say, I listen to your podcast all the time when I was working on my memoir, so it's very surreal and such an honor to be oh, here with you right now. That makes me so happy. I think you might be the first guest who this is like a full circle moment with. Thank you for telling me that. And I'm so happy that it was useful to you. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, wow. So can you share a bit about your story, which we just glazed over in the bio, I, I glazed over it, and your new book, Girl Uprooted? Yeah, sure. So my dad's a diplomat or was a diplomat because he's retired now. But that meant growing up, I moved countries every three years, which is the regular cadence for Korean diplomats. I've moved nine times across six countries. And each time we moved, my whole world changed overnight. So not only my house, my school, my friends, but the food, the language, the culture, the climate, the color of people's skins, everything. The only meaningful constant in my life was my immediate family. So my parents, my older brother, and our Yorkshire Terrier. But I had an especially fraught relationship with my dad because, you know, he tried to instill traditional Confucian values in me, like filial piety and obeying your elders, which I resisted, uh, much to the detriment of our relationship. So Girl Uprooted is my story of growing up between East and West and trying to find a sense of identity and belonging. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very useful also the way that you talk about stress and trauma and what kind of effect this type of quick moving and changing locations and schools and environments has on a child. You found some research to support that. Do you want to, I know you don't have the numbers right in front of you, but do you want to just talk a little bit about what you discovered? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but I discovered some research in my late 20s that all this moving around, not just internationally, but even uh, you know frequent relocations within a country, so within the U.S., um, was proven to have a detrimental impact on the child's well-being and also in their later adulthood. And one that really shocked me was that you know a, someone who moved at the age of 14 has double the risk of suicide uh, later in life or something like that. So you can imagine I moved nine times across six countries. It was yeah quite mind blowing when I. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, of course, I read your book, but its I don't think it's a spoiler to say that your parents didn't know about the effect this could have on you, and there was no real recourse for what you were going through emotionally. Yeah, that's fair. I think my mom especially, she, with the best of intentions, you know, wanted you know, my brother to make the most of our global upbringing, which meant just throwing us in situations and be like, you know, children adapt so easily. Mm. I think she was a little bit naive and just it just really had no idea the potential impact it could have. 
Yeah. And of course, you didn't totally either. I mean, that's no. part of what the book is about, right? Because I think we all, you know, I know that you're, you grew up in a culture different from the one that I grew up in with your parents, but mm-hmm. there's still this sense, at least there has been for so long about we have to be resilient, we have to be tough. And I expected that of myself too. And, and that was part of my upbringing, at least on the kibbutz in Israel, where you're tough on the outside, but you can be more emotional on the inside. But the idea of not expressing emotions or hardships or frailty was full fully something that I bought into as well. And I think that hopefully, hopefully with more education and more resources and the more we talk about it in our culture as a whole, we can start to embrace the fact that people get deeply affected, profoundly changed by this kind of movement. Absolutely. And I would add as well, you know, especially a diplomat family, there's such privilege attached to it. You know, Mm. it's such a privileged upbringing that sometimes it feels very like I'm complaining if I'm talking Mm -hmm. about how challenging it was but I hope that it's okay and that's kind of the book is about me giving myself permission to grieve and saying you know what it's okay to acknowledge the losses because and only by doing that do you really are you truly grateful and can you truly see the positives I think Yes, yes. And I also, I know that you talk a little bit about your brother. He he features in your book a little bit. And I don't want to ask something that is not something you're comfortable sharing, but has your relationship with your brother changed at all since the book came out or since the last few chapters about him were written? Yes, it has because actually my brother, he, he's older by uh, four years and we were never close growing up. And looking back, I think it was partly that I think moving around was difficult for both of us. And rather than talking about it, I think we both suffered in our own ways. But mm. he um, read my book in one sitting um, and he told me he cried reading it. After reading my book, he sent me a very long message that took me like half an hour just to read it. And he said that, you know, initially he thought he was reading the book to just do some brief fact check- checking. And mm. then the more he read my story, he realized that I was just being very honest about my recollection and he stopped caring about disputing the accuracy of my story or, mm-hmm. or all that. And he ended up really just being so vulnerable and telling me everything that he had been through, especially like, you know, I had no idea that moving around was so difficult for him. And there's also that, you know, being a guy, I think it's even more mm-hmm. difficult. So when I read his story, yeah, it definitely made me cry and realize like, I mean, it would have been so nice if we'd been able to mm-hmm. have more open discussions growing up, but to even have that chance today as adults and to connect is, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like beautiful that we got the chance to do that. Oh, yes. And that is a testament to how sharing our stories can actually open up conversations and create more vulnerability within ourselves and also the people we care about because it sounds like in a way you were each going through your own prison Mm -hmm. and both felt like nobody was really listening to what you needed and you both kind of defended against that feeling and locked each other out inadvertently yeah that's right yeah and I think there's like a grieving almost I mean I would imagine it makes me sad to think about it you know because we can't all have close relationships with our siblings or even consistently close relationships they change all the time Mm -hmm. but there's this shared experience that siblings go through for the most part that they can really help each other with if that opportunity is offered but it doesn't always happen exactly exactly and I think it's interesting because I don't 
all of this com- deep communication with my brother happened through writing. He wrote to me mm. and I don't think the same would have happened if we were chatting in real life. And the other thing is, you know, I'm bilingual in Korean English and in our family, we always spoke Korean with the language of our family. But all of this conversation, of course, I wrote my book in English, but he also replied to me in English. And mm. I felt like it was a conversation that could maybe only happen in writing in English. Which is, yeah, yeah that's so interesting. Yeah, you mentioned something about that in the book about okay. the Korean language and the communication between your parents being a little bit altered because yeah. of that mm-hmm. for you. And does your brother, is he in touch with your father? He is. It's actually interesting. He told me recently because I'm living, I've been living in London for nine years now, and my brother is in Korea where my parents are. And he's kind of suggested that. It's been difficult for him because he feels like he's bearing the burden. I don't know how to put this um, correctly, but it's it's all on his shoulders of not taking care of my parents, but um, yeah, yeah, representing right. I mean, he everything that they 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 would look to, and a kid is right there in front of them, exactly. and you kind of you kind of are <laughs> away out of sight. Exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, thank you for letting me ask you those more personal questions that I know I hadn't planned on, but I really appreciate your ability to kind of reflect mm-hmm. on that. So can you talk a little bit about when you knew you wanted to write the memoir and, and how you began? Yeah. So I started writing in early 2020, which is when the first COVID lockdown hit in the UK. Honestly, that feels like a lifetime ago now, but (laughs) the idea to write this memoir had been brewing for some time by then. So as you know, Renee, I suffered from mental health issues from a very young age, and I was depressed and binge drinking heavily in my early 20s. And then in 2017, I tried to take my own life. But the whole time, I never understood why I had all these issues. And it was only, I think, around the age of 27, um, I first came across the concept of third culture kids, but also the, specifically this concept of unresolved grief, not in the context of death, but among globally mobile people like me. And mm-hmm. I realized I was harboring a heck of a lot of it because each time we moved, my entire world changed overnight. I was constantly saying goodbye to friends, but growing up, I never had time to process any of it. And I was busy adapting, trying to fit in, make new friends. But of course, all this moving around caught up with me. So once I understood this, everything kind of clicked for me. And writing was a way for me to process this unresolved grief and make sense of my life. Mm-hmm. And do you remember how you started? Did you did you give yourself a task or did you take a writing class or did you just decide, okay, I'm going to just start at the beginning as far as I understand it? How did you get the first words on the page? I definitely didn't start at the beginning. I think I just started writing whatever kind of came to my mind. Um, so it was kind of like bullet points from very different chapters of my life. And yeah, I had no creative writing experience before, so I definitely bought like a bunch of craft books. Listen to your podcast as one of them. Yeah, so it, it was definitely starting from scratch, but in a very haphazard way. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then some memoirists recommend, there's this quote, and I'm going to just paraphrase, although it could be right on, right on the nose, writing from the wound and revising from the scar, so that we, we write from where the passion and the emotion is flowing and really where we are tapped in and we don't filter ourselves for example but then we revise from a little bit more distance or a little more quiet 
emotion. And I I wonder what you would say is your emotional distance from some of what you include in Girl Uprooted, like the alcohol use and the binge eating and your suicide attempt and your relationship with your father, which is all, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of like young adult, teenage to young adult history. And I don't think you're very old. So I'm curious mm-hmm. how how raw this was for you as you wrote it and how you navigated that. Um, so, well, in terms of the emotional distance, I feel like I had a healthy emotional distance in the sense that I was writing from a good place when I started. Having said that to your the phrase you used, writing from the wound and revising from the scar, I felt that writing the first draft was painful, so painful. And the only thing that got me through was, I think, reading Anne Lamott's advice about shitty first draft and just get something, anything down on paper. That's how mm. it felt. So... But it's so raw when you're writing about difficult topics, and I don't think you can get around that. For me, when I say writing was therapeutic, because it very much was, I'm talking really about the editing and revising process, because that's for me when I started to connect the dots and make sense of what happened to me, like why I am the way I am. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how did you take care of yourself when it was difficult? Did you have a way to kind of gauge all right I need to keep at this I need to push myself even though it's difficult or all right it's time to pull back I've done enough for the day Uh, definitely the latter you know it's so tough because I jumped around a lot in terms of which period of my life I was writing about each day and you know I had to be in the right mood to write whatever it was writing about that day but when I was writing about really you know, emotionally intense and difficult bits. I was easier on myself in terms of how much I wrote and how long I wrote for each day. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, I was writing, you know, doing this for myself to heal. So it doesn't mm-hmm. really make sense for me to harm myself in the process. So I think mm-hmm. it's really important to be kind to yourself and have self-compassion when you're writing. I really like how you said that. Uh, there's no reason really to harm yourself in the process of talking about the harm you experienced. I really, I don't think anyone has said that that way to me on this show. So I definitely can already see that on a quote card. So I'm hoping you can give a little bit of background about where we are in your story at the point uh, of the excerpt that we discussed mm-hmm. you reading. And then, you know, give as much background as you feel is necessary. Talk about whatever you want, and then you can go ahead and read it. Yeah, sure. So this is after my family's moved back to Korea after six years abroad, so three in Malaysia and three in the US. I'm 14 years old and I've been thrown into this ridiculously strict Korean boarding school where we have to study until 11.30pm every evening and I feel suffocated. I'm misbehaving, getting suspended. I'm at the bottom of my class and my best friend Sujin has just been taken out of school. After Sujin left, I thought harder about whether I should transfer to or drop out and earn a high school diploma. How could I possibly survive school now? It had been bad enough as it was. I wished my mom would do what all the other moms of maladjusted kids were doing. I texted and called her, begging her to get me out of there. Instead, she made prison visits during the week and we sat in her car in the parking lot. She would bring me her signature cheesecake, which she intended for me to share with my friends, what friends, but I devoured in one sitting. I recently broached this topic again with my mom. You know, I really wish you'd listened to me back then. What do you mean, she said. Taken me out of school? Her face went blank like she didn't understand. I clearly wasn't doing well, I added, flustered that a further explanation was even required. She opened her mouth to speak, then hesitated. After a long pause, she finally said, I would do it exactly the same if we were to turn back time. I hadn't expected her to respond this way to defend herself. 
Why is it so difficult for you to admit that it was wrong? I'm telling you now, my voice was rising, as an adult, that that school did so much damage to me. We can't change the past. I just wish you'd acknowledge that that school was wrong for me. Why is it so difficult for you to say this? What was I meant to do? Take you out of school? God forbid homeschool you? You don't really think that, do you? I did, as a matter of fact. You know what? Never mind. Forget I said anything. There's no point having this conversation with you. Even after all these years, I was fuming. My mom is a reasonable person, so I couldn't understand why she was so adamant on this point. It wouldn't change my view of what a great mom she was and is, how much she loved and loves me, how she was only doing her best. How could she still not see where I was coming from? Part of me wishes I could let it go. It benefits no one, certainly not me, to stay so resentful, but I just can't seem to, at least not yet. In fact, as I was writing these chapters, I had a variation of the same dream three nights in a row. I am back at the school, pleading with my mom and teachers to take me out, telling them I've already been to university, that I have a job, but no one listens. People walk past me. I am invisible. Thank you. That really highlights what so many memoirists experience when working on material, that it comes back and we are kind of living through it again. Mm-hmm. Your your mom, I saw a picture um, mm-hmm. on Instagram of your mom coming for your book launch. Mm-hmm. And has she read your book? Oh, she has. Yeah. And how was that for you, for her? Unsurprisingly, it was very difficult for her to read through everything that I described. And she cried a lot. And she was very apologetic and saying that she just had no idea what I was going through but you know when I shared the book with her it's not like an apology I wanted obviously I just wanted her to understand what my Mm. experience was so it's been tough like even after you know the books come out (laughs) when she came for the book launch party actually we just both cried our eyes out and actually we were talking about the same thing about this high school which is so funny because you know like i'm not you know old but i'm 32 years old now so this is you know it it shouldn't cut so deep but for some reason it's just raw but you know what i think that's okay like it really has brought us closer and i think that's Mm -hmm. the important thing yeah and also it makes me think a bit about how Obviously, we can't change what happened in the past. And when we write material like this, it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change anyone's mind mm-hmm. who we were in relationship with, right? That's not exactly why we do it, though. I mean, if we were writing the memoirs, at least my point of view, the way I approach this, I mean, I'm, I was never writing to to change anyone's mind, it, you know, about what happened. Or it's really just to get clarity on my end and to tell my story the way I understand it. Exactly. It's for that understanding, self-understanding, and also for others to understand you, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. And then, and you say this thing, I I actually, I don't know if you have it near you, but I can read it. I have it, that little excerpt toward the end of the book, you write about how you would write in 10 years time. Mm -hmm. Do you have that in front of you? Yeah, so this is towards the end of my book, as you say. However, although I try to be truthful as possible in writing this book, I recognize that ultimately it is me, as I am today, who is creating a story and imposing a narrative on my past. Determining what goes in and what stays out, who goes in and who stays out, has proven to be much less straightforward than I expected. And by writing, I am crystallizing my memories as they are today, when I'm sure this book would have looked different had I written it 10 years ago or in 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the lens, because I don't know, I mean, you probably finished this book the version that is in the world now 
about a year ago. Is that right? Or was it more ago than that? Um, the first draft in 2021. And then I've, yeah, I've continued working on it. So, yeah. yeah. So do you still feel pretty aligned as a memoirist with the lens you use in this book? So far, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. But you know, I'm yeah. asking yeah. because we, cha- we change. And actually, when I wrote my memoir, it has a, an epilogue. And I never expected, I never expected what happened in the epilogue to happen. But instead of going back and writing the whole book, mm. because that it kind of encapsulated yeah. how I was feeling when I wrote the book, I kind of added it to the end. Yeah. And I have thought about it before. Oh, well, maybe I should have gone back and massaged everything knowing this. But it was a choice I made. And if I wrote the book again, I think maybe it would be different. But I don't plan on writing it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's the persona that I used for that particular book. So like, I'm 32 now, which I know many people would consider quite young, um, especially to be writing a memoir like this. But like to me, it felt like the right time because, or even more than that, I felt like I had to write my story in order to move on with my life. It had, I felt like it had to be done now. And I have no doubt my perspective will keep changing. Like certainly if and when I have children, I'm sure my perspective will change. And I'd hope that's a good thing. It's a sign of my personal growth. Um, mm. But I don't think that invalidates, you know, my perspective today. Like, I'm really curious, you know, what I'll think if I read my own book in 10 years time. But but I don't yeah. think I would write it again in 10 years time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what about, um, are there any, are there any events or people or scenes that you found yourself really protecting or editing out because you thought, yeah, I don't want to write about this or I might get into trouble or this person's going to get mad. Did that happen at all for you? Do you know what? I actually felt very, I don't know, entitled is maybe not the right word, but like I felt like I was in my right to tell what I felt was my truth. And I think maybe I felt empowered by, I think what Anne Lamott says about, you know, if people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. I love that quote. Yeah. I know it's like a banner. It should be like a a banner that all memoirists wave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, but you did share it, didn't you, with your first, one of your first loves, because you mentioned that in your book. I did, yeah. Yeah, and was that, was that something that you were happy you were able to do? Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I did run it past, like, lots of people from my past if they appear more than in passing. One of them was my first love from when I was 16, and I hadn't spoken to him at all since then, Mm. but I did want to write about the story because it was a significant part of I, I had that unresolved grief from that because uh, mm. saying goodbye because of my dad moving at you know when I was 15 17 was really hard and it was the first time I was experienced a heartbreak like that mm-hmm. so like I just reached out to him and when we you know he responded straight away and when we got on video and I saw him like I actually started <laughs> crying I was so emotional and I just felt mm. it was so bizarre because you know I'm in a very happy long-term relationship with my boyfriend so I had there was no residual hope whatsoever of like I want to get back with this guy but it still somehow provoked a very strong reaction in me so but all, yeah. you know yeah it, but that was like healing do you know what's yeah. really funny Roni <laughs> Not long ago, another ex reached out to me and he's not in the book. And he said, he said, hey, I haven't like spoken to him in like 10 plus years as well. He says, like, congratulations on your book. I've just got it. And yeah, I was a little disappointed to see that I wasn't in it. <laughs> so I was like, I, I, 
you worry about yeah like upsetting people who are in the book but i haven't really thought through upsetting people who aren't in the book that's really funny what did you say to him like you just didn't register what did you say I just try to be just like civil, like diplomatic with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And this is the other thing that I found myself really wanting resolution for you in, in these areas of your story, especially as it relates for you know to you and your father. I, I kept thinking as if it were a novel. I don't know mm. why. Oh, and this is going to be the scene where he apologizes. <laughs> and, and I think that's something often we expect of fiction. It's not memoir necessarily. So I'm wondering how excavating all this material maybe informed your perspective about your relationship with your father. My that's like a central character in my book, but as you'll notice, like I actually don't know much about his upbringing. Um, mm. I can place him in a certain kind of context of he grew up not long after the Korean War, so I can kind of imagine. But we didn't, you know, he's like the you know kind of stereotypical patriarchal traditional Korean man who doesn't talk about his feelings or you know mm. his upbringing. So it's like a black box to me. So I can mm. only wonder. Um, but yeah, in terms of like a resolution, you know, although my book's a finished product, my life is very much a work in progress and I'm still living it every day. And the reality is there hasn't been a resolution with my dad. You know, I know some people when they're writing about family, they'll wait for the relevant, you know, individuals to die before they write. But, you know, I actually felt the opposite because I really wanted to show my story to my dad and I really wanted him to read it. And I wanted to help him understand where I was coming from and maybe for this to be a catalyst for us to start a real dialogue and just understand each other better. And that hasn't happened yet. He has read my book, but... And, um, oh, wow. Mm, but it's funny because he actually uh, shared a handful of comments for me and they were extremely specific. Like he was correcting details about the fact that the piano he bought me when I was five was... A console piano not an upright piano so mm. that's the kind of detail he was correcting but he never actually disputed hmm. the meteors of the actual things that happened between us or even though i was never asking him for permission to share my like share my story and publish the book like he never even tried to object to it but mm -hmm. we haven't spoken yet but i think that's because i've had a lot of time to work on this material process and think about our relationship but for him i don't think he's done that so when he's read my book i think it i'm sure it's come as a bit of a shock to him and he needs time to process and self-reflect too but yeah like i feel kind of cautiously optimistic about our relationship i feel cautious because you know well i i feel like i've been burnt a few times as it relates to yeah. my relationship with him. So I know I need to protect myself, but I'm also optimistic because I, you know, there's still time for us to repair our relationship and I think it can happen. Mm -hmm. I thank you for that. I, I really appreciate you talking about that. I, I shared my book with my father before it came out with my nuclear family and I got nine pages of single space Ooh. notes. <laughs> wow. I know I mentioned that I used to mention that when I would do mm -hmm. events for the book. And some of them were logistics or corrections of my Hebrew or things like that. Mm -hmm. Some of them were actually pushbacks on things that he was sure did not happen. And luckily, I was able to corroborate with my sister. Mm. But I mean, 
mean, I think there was a worry about reputation. And and the thing is, the interesting thing is, and I've talked about this before, so I hope I'm not boring everyone who's listened before. I did definitely temper one or two things that I was worried. You, he pointed something out, and I it was not my intention to make it seem like he was a negligent father in that particular instance. So I didn't, I wasn't trying to do that, but it kind of might have come mm-hmm. across that way. So I just kind of added something to the sentence to make sure it showed that he had no idea of what I was going through at that point. But in terms of the father or the the paternal or maternal person in your life, jealous, being jealous of you or competitive or begrudging you your success, like that's a really complicated dynamic. And I think it's it's great that you were able to kind of talk about it because people don't don't often see that reflected in, in work, but it really does exist. Yes. Yeah. You I know? know. I, I wonder, yet to have this conversation with my father, w- one thing I really struggle with him is I'm really just not sure how much self-awareness he has. I mm-hmm. There are times when I think he knows exactly what he's doing, and there are mm-hmm. times when I think he, he truly doesn't get it. So even if he is jealous or was jealous, I don't know, you know, after reading that, he recognizes that or he truly believes that. I, I don't know. That's a hard one, right? Because it's mm. kind of ambiguous then. And then you don't know if someone did something on purpose to hurt you yeah. or if they hurt you inadvertently. But I mean, there is also this idea of, well, it's it's pain and there can be sort of a healing if, if the other party is willing to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know I've opened up an entire can of dad worms here, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's yeah. important and I'm really glad we yeah. were able to talk about it. So what, what are some of the memoirs that you turn to? Um, you've mentioned... And Lamont's work, but shout out any books that you like, and I'll put them in the show notes. Okay, so many. Um, Crying in Eight Part <laughs> by Michelle Zahner, which is about her growing up mixed race and exploring her Korean identity in the wake of her mother's death. I, I think your listeners may be familiar with that. Aftershocks by Nadia Owusu, who also grew up all over the world, and she also explores her identity and her relationship with her Ghanaian father, who died when she was 13. A recent one I loved is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which is about mm-hmm. his growing up mixed race to a Swiss father and a black Kosa mother. Um, and this is in apartheid South Africa. It's um, like hilarious and both harrowing. Mm-hmm. And then another recent one is In Order to Live by Yun Mi Park, which is an extraordinary story of a North Korean refugee. And then finally, A Dutiful Boy by Bosun Zaidi, which is about um, his coming out gay after growing up in a devout Shia Muslim community in East London. And this one is so heartbreaking, so funny, Mm. and so moving. And if you haven't noticed, they're all by writers of color and family (laughs) dynamics and how culture plays into the family dynamics is at the core of all of these. Yes, I appreciate those. And only one or two have been mentioned on the show before. So this is great. And those are some juicy reads. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) And then is there advice you'd like to share with writers working on their memoirs? Yeah, so I love everything Elizabeth Gilbert says in Big Magic, but there's two bits in particular that really stayed with me. So one is to focus on authenticity over originality. So she says, most things have already been done, but they haven't been done by you. So just say what you want to say, then say it with all your heart. And if it's authentic enough, it'll feel original. Um, And the other one, uh, the other thing that Elizabeth Gilbert says is good enough is better than perfectionism. So with writing especially, like most people don't even finish their manuscripts. So to have just completed something is an achievement in and of itself. And I know I poured my heart and soul into my memoir for at least a good three years. I also know it's far from perfect, but you know what? It's good enough for me and I'd rather move on and focus my attention on the next thing. So 
second wow prototype. thank you i love those thank you mm-hmm. where can people find you lena so everything's on my website the lena lee.com that's spelled the t-h-e lena l-e-n-a and then lee l-e-e and i'm also on instagram at the lena lee Thank you. I'm really glad we had this chance to talk about your book and your family and your experience um, with, with moving around so much and trying to understand and come to grips with the effect of all that. I just thank you so much for being my guest. Well, thank you so much for having me, Rooney. This has been so special. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.